Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. My name is Kenna. I'm Koel. This one's a fucking doozy. A doozy. It's the dooziest of the doozies. I forgot that we weren't doing any ads here, and no. that means that there's no pause for the music, because it's going to go to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Yeah. Are you excited to be having your case on a Tuesday this week? That's kind of it's, weird, right? It's odd. It Very feels odd. odd, but everything feels odd this week with the con coming up oh this weekend. Oh my god. We are so excited. I've been posting the countdown on the Instagram, and yes. this is technically also a countdown with this case, so this will be mm-hmm. countdown two, and then... I guess one tomorrow, yeah. or not tomorrow, but when this comes out on Wednesday for the last mental breakdown, mm-hmm. and then we're going, and then we're going. Oh my gosh, I can't even. I've so been... that just means that nothing on Thursday is to be expected, but we'll try to get you something out on Monday, which is likely going to be our experience while yeah. we're gone. So. Absolutely. We're definitely going to talk about that. But before we do get into this case, do you want to tell everybody about where they can find us on social media if this is their first time listening? Sure. If it's your first time listening, you can check out diagnosingakiller.com. There, there is links to merch and resources. You can also check us out on any social media platform at diagnosingakiller. Other than X, which is at Killer Diagnosis. And yeah, I think that's it. We have a Patreon. We have a PayPal. Hit us up. Hit us up. Hit us up. I do just want to quickly mention a message that I got on my personal Instagram the other day from my friend Christina. She said that she's been binging DAK and she said it's so good that we crack her up. And she said she already is on episode 20 and she only started a few weeks ago. Nice. <laughs> listening. And then I messaged her literally within a few hours she's like i'm on episode 24 now actually (laughs) so she's clearly been listening a lot so thank you christina for the words and for listening and we're glad that you are here Mm -hmm. are here thank you for being here (laughs) absolutely so today's case is actually a request from another listener and this request dates back to february of this year oh my goodness okay so it's an oldie but a goodie okay and one of our listeners requested it. I read the whole message back in the day, back in February. So if you want to mm-hmm. listen to the whole message, read it there. But I will be sure to mention the name in our post when we do post this because okay. she said that was okay. Yeah. But without further ado, today we are going to be talking about one Gerard John Schaefer. Gerard Schaefer? Yes. I don't think I know this one. I didn't know this one either. Okay. But I will say it's fucking horrendous. Where's he from? He is from Wisconsin. Wisconsin? Yes. Okay. So, American guy. We're going to be talking about him today via request, and let's get into it, because this is going to be a doozy of a case. Okay, I can't wait. Content warning. This episode contains depictions of child abuse, violent sexual fantasies, extreme animal cruelty, assault and murder of minors, sexual tendencies, negative idolations of race, and talk of cannibalism. If this is not the episode for you, we encourage you to find another episode. Remember, your mental health is very important to us, and we love you. Love you. Bye. What is that content warning? So, yeah. There's a lot going on. (sighs) Are you sure this is one person? That's a lot. It's a lot. (sighs) And he he just had a lot of internal shit going on. And we'll obviously get into all of that, but let's get into when... Okay, well, that's awful. Off to a great start. His name is Gerard. Okay. So we're going to get into when he was born. Gerard John Schaefer was born on March 26th, 1946 in Nina, Wisconsin. I said Washington. He would be the first of three children born to Gerard John Schaefer Sr. and Doris Marie Runis Schaefer. 
with a sister named Sarah and a brother named Gary. Hmm. Oh, always a Gary. Always a Gary. Gerard Sr. was a traveling salesman for Kimberly Clark, who were known for their toiletries and household items at the time, and Mom Doris was a housewife or a stay-at-home mom. Hmm. Although Gerard was born in Wisconsin, he would be raised mostly in Nashville, Tennessee, as his dad was frequently moving the family due to his job. The family would move yet again while Gerard was still young, locating this time to Atlanta, Georgia, where Gerard would attend Marist Academy, a private Catholic school. Okay. Pretty religious-based family. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the family would relocate once again, this time to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in 1960, where they would remain permanently for the remainder of okay. George childhood. Still a lot of moving for a young kid. Still a lot. In 1960, I mean, he was born in 46, 46 so yeah. he's 14, and he's moved, like, four times. Like, yeah. that's gotta be a lot, a lot. And having to make new friends every time, and having, like, you new can't schools. really keep in contact, especially now. There's no cell phones back then, you know? It's not the 1920s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> He had a pen pal. Yeah, exactly. It was probably um, hard for him. Gerard would later describe his childhood as, quote, troubled and turbulent, hmm. end quote, mostly due to the frequent moves due to dad's job, like I said, but also due to his father actually being very verbally abusive and an alcoholic. Okay. Gerard Sr. was noted as being verbally abusive to the children and his wife alike throughout the kids' upbringing. And although Gerard Sr.'s job would keep him out of the house often, it also caused him and his eldest son, Gerard Jr., to have a tumultuous relationship because they didn't get to see each other. And when they did, he was drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So Gerard Jr. always thought that his father favored his two siblings and he resented him for the frequent belittling and favoritism. Well, what an interesting thought because you're literally named after the guy. Yeah. But he still thinks that he favors, like, his siblings. Well, do you think that maybe he thought, like... In a way, because he was his namesake, he would be treated better. I think that might be the case. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's then, like, or maybe it's like, oh, you only named me that because I was your firstborn, but you clearly don't like me. Yeah, or whatever. Or firstborn son. Ugh. Yeah. So, due to this difficult relationship with his father, Gerard Jr. would become close to his mother while growing up, as one does. Doris was the opposite of Gerard Sr., and she was known as being extremely protective of not only herself, but the children as well, especially mm. when it would come to these, like, abusive arguments. So she would, like, get in the middle sometimes, you think? Yeah. Um, you know, he would either be yelling at her, and she would defend herself verbally, whatever, or yelling at the kids, and she would defend them, I okay. think is what it came down to. Yeah. And I mention this because I feel like we really commonly hear that if the father is abusive, the mother is also, like, either, like, an addict or neglectful or something, like, in mm. these cases. Or is it just ignores it. Exactly. Or, like, pretends like it's not yeah. there. So, um, kind of wanted to mention that the mom in, in this particular case was really defensive of her mm. children. So, although Gerard had a better relationship with his mom, he also sometimes thought that she favored her other children as well over him. And while some people would refer to the Schaefer's children's childhood as, quote, idyllic, end quote, Gerard would refer to himself as the, quote, illegitimate product of a forced marriage, end quote. Ooh, that's heavy. That is heavy. So, it's like, yeah. He, like, he's like, they didn't want... They didn't even want me. Yeah, exactly. And now he, I'm this, essentially the cause of this them being together he might think that and he's like they're probably still together only because of the kids mm -hmm. and now it's like my fault that they're yeah. in this tumultuous relationship oh, that's such a hard feeling for like a through. teenager yeah or a kid i don't know when he said that later but you know what i mean he probably felt that way when he was younger mm -hmm. he would also later speak about his problems with both of his parents stating that they quote never had a good relationship end quote that his father was, quote, always critical, end quote, and his mother was, quote, always on my back to do better, end quote. Oh, so it's gosh. like he can't win. Like, he's yeah. like, and no matter what I do, 
I can't please them. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not their favorite. Or I'm, yeah, I'm never gonna... It's it's never gonna be solved because I am the problem. Yeah. Ugh. I know, it's awful. So due to the fact that Gerard Sr. seemed to favor his daughter Sarah, Gerard Jr. would later admit that this is what made him, quote, want to be a girl, end quote. Oh, okay. Gerard Jr. would also struggle with suicidal thoughts before the age of 12, stating, quote, I wanted to die, end quote, and telling psychiatrists, quote, I couldn't please my father, so in playing games, I always got killed, end quote. Mm. So, like, they would role play or whatever, and he yeah. would always be the one to, like, die. That's, like, kind of like Randy Stare, when Randy Stare would have those homework assignments, those essay assignments, mm-hmm. and he would always write him as kind of this main character and he would always end up dying either by suicide or yeah you know uh death by cop or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so okay yeah kind of similar not being able to please his father gerard would continuously try and he would pursue outdoor activities such as like hunting and fishing and even developed a liking for gun collecting because these were things that like his dad was into Mm -hmm. gerard senior would partake in these activities with junior so it made him feel closer to his father when they were able to hang out at the age of 12, Gerard stated that he, quote, discovered women's panties for the first time, mm-hmm. and he would begin to masturbate while wearing them himself. Okay. At 12, by the way. I don't know if you heard me say that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, I did think I'm listening. Thanks, I'm listening. <laughs> Around this age as well is when Gerard first began experimenting with masochistic bondage, stating, quote, I'd tie myself up to a tree struggle to get free, and I'd get excited sexually and do something to hurt myself, end quote. Whoa. Remember, he's 12. That's heavy. I know I said that, like, three times, but just let everyone know. How do you, how do you, I'm sorry, but, like, at 12, how do you come up with stuff like that? Well, you have to have seen it somewhere. Have seen it somewhere, right? Yeah. As it usually goes with these cases, what Gerard was partaking in would not continue to satisfy him, and he would begin to escalate his fantasies, stating, quote, I would fantasize about hurting other people, women in particular, end quote. You think he had, like, a hatred for women because of his sister? I think he was extremely jealous of his sister, yeah. So it's more like a, yeah, it's not that he's maybe necessarily attracted to women as much as he hates women. I don't think it's, like, a mommy complex either. I think it's, yeah. like, I think it, it's a jealousy thing at the end of the day. yeah. And he said that he, like, again, wanted to be a girl he because struggled with he, his thought, identity. Yeah. he thought that's what would make his dad, like, pay more attention to him, I yeah. think. I don't think he actually really wanted to be a female. That's interesting. You know, I know. So he would also admit about this time that he had an extreme obsession of death to the point where it was all he could think about. He would say about this preoccupation that it got to the point that he, quote, didn't know what was fact and what was fantasy, end quote. So it's like ingrained somewhere it's ingratiated into his thoughts and his memory yeah that he and just that's something that is just a part of him now exactly and it reminds me of the mental breakdown that we did it would have come out bef- the day before this episode about how your brain can like really trick you into believing yeah like anything placebos or yeah yeah so now we're back in 1960 when the family first moved to fort lauderdale and they would quickly join the local yacht clubs and country clubs around town okay so they were really well off they were and i think that they also really liked the idea of people knowing that they were well off i see yeah the same year that they moved when gerard was just 14 he would meet a young girl by the name of cindy and the two would quickly begin dating i was gonna say cindy Luhu, and he was 14 so they couldn't i mean i guess it could have been married yeah <laughs> they need to get a uh, parent's permission though, i'm pretty sure right <laughs> they would continuously date over the next three years but their relationship was hardly passionate as they came to a specific agreement well 
Gerard would say that it was an agreement. Not sure about Cindy. Okay. In this relationship, when the two would engage in sexual activity, every single time, Cindy would perform in scripted scenarios in which she would demand that Gerard, quote, rape her, end quote. It's like a rape fantasy. Yeah, but okay. I'm pretty sure it was all him, and she's like, yeah, I'll do this, like, <laughs> yeah. if you want. If that's what, yeah, if that's what gets you off, I guess. Yeah. Now, Gerard would attend St. Thomas Aquinas High School, a Roman Catholic co-educational college prep school, where he would recall, quote, not being a part of any clique, end quote, and he would prefer to pursue his interests alone, defining himself as a loner of sorts. Okay. I'm a loner, Dottie. I'm a rebel. <laughs> loner, Dottie. <laughs> it reminds me of Randy Sarah yeah. or Ellie Roger, you mm-hmm. know? His family and peers would describe Gerard during this time as a, quote, outdoorsman, end quote, who was wanting to become a forest ranger in the future. That also sounds like Randy Stare. This just sounds like Randy Stare. But it's like, <laughs> he's an outdoorsman. What is he doing? He's, animals. yeah, he's is out he, there like, fucking actually, with animals. Yeah, is he actually, like, into hunting for, like, sport or, uh, like, for Dumb, used to do that eating? Too. Or is he, like, putting dogs' heads on spikes? Yeah, exactly. As a, as a quote-unquote prank yeah. a neighborhood prank <laughs> i'm just pranking innocent them neighborhood prank. it's an innocent neighborhood prank <laughs> with the seemingly innocent comments made by gerard's peers others in school would also describe him as quote weird and out of it end quote even stating that he would quote practically stand on his head to see up a girl's skirt what yeah i'm sorry i interrupted your end quote but wow that's extreme yeah that's so gross it's like don't be that obvious about yeah. it. Like, what are you doing? Don't be that obvious. Put mirrors on your You're shoes. You're in a Roman Catholic school. <laughs> like, come on. No. Put mirrors on your <laughs> shoes. You're just giving people ideas over here. I'm sorry. Don't do that. That's gross. <laughs> That's gross. Gerard would also be noted as frequently upsetting the nuns by questioning the religious practices, and even once wrote an essay that scientifically challenged the virgin birth of Christ. He also looked up their skirts. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> now, being a peeping Tom was not helping Gerard's image at school, and although he was seeing Cindy, other girls remember feeling very negatively about him. Mm-hmm. A former classmate of Gerard's by the name of Barbara Krolick stated about Gerard, quote, I can't remember him being friends with any of the guys. He was always on the outside looking in. As a matter of fact, the only thing I really remember is that I always had to tuck my skirt under my legs, end <gasps> quote. That is so uncomfortable. She's sorry, the same woman that he would see on his head. I, was, <laughs> I know I was cracking jokes, but in all seriousness, I cannot imagine walking around like a school campus and feeling that uncomfortable. Feeling like someone. you have to, like the you skirt is the uniform. Yourself. Yeah, you have to wear that. So there's no getting around that. Yeah, and then you have to like hold it down when you walk because of some creepo. That's so gross. Seriously, oh, it's disgusting. Now, even with the fellow students having their strong opinions of Gerard, he was actually considered to be a very promising student by his teachers. A look into a yearbook from St. Thomas would show that Gerard was on the varsity football team during his sophomore and junior years, although no one remembers him joining the team or playing at all. <laughs> so I don't know how he got that to he happen. He played dress up and ran into the photo. That's or he, great. like, bribed the journalist guy, like, yeah. does a yearbook. <laughs> It's like, like one of those say that I was on the team. Yeah, like one of those where he's on one knee with like his helmet, you know, like yeah. in the field. One of those shots. One of those shots, and it's like a parent paid page where like they put, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they put it in there. Yeah, uh, Gerard, best quarterback. Yeah, <laughs> what the fuck? I never saw him play once. So I with Cindy, is it just that she likes that he's weird, or is it? I actually don't know. She kind of, I don't. 
I don't, I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't hear anything from Cindy. I don't know Cindy. Yeah. My opinion, I think that she just kind of went along with it. Maybe she was into the sex. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe she just wanted a high school boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. You know? And maybe she felt bad for him because he was weird. There you go. Clearly. So speaking of sports, Gerard was also known to have been really good at golf, although he would never pursue this. But although he also was in the yearbooks. Pepper in there. <laughs> <laughs> he also did tennis and he did bowling and yeah, he did swimming. He did everything. So. <laughs> in the spring of 1964, during his senior year, Gerard would meet a 17-year-old girl by the name of Sandy Stewart at a school dance. Cindy had actually broken things off with Gerard earlier this year, so good they were him. already broken up. Good job, Cindy. Um, Sandy, I was gonna say Cindy, Sandy Sandy? would later refer to Gerard as a, quote, dazzling young stranger, end quote, (laughs) who swept her off her feet and became her first love with his impressive relationship with her parents. Okay. So he... Promising young man. He's a promising young suitor. Yes. A suitor. A suitor. (laughs) As my daughter finally chosen a suitor. (laughs) Aladdin. Is that Aladdin? Okay. (laughs) I was thinking mall rats. I love that movie. (laughs) Sandy also stated that Gerard had extremely good manners and would go out of his way to make their time together special. He was really romantic. Aw. Right? Like, seems like a catch. Yeah. Well, he's going to butter her up and her parents. Yeah. Real quick. Gerard had taken Sandy on an excursion to the Everglades at one point and actually tried to encourage her to engage in hunting with him. Oh. Sandy remembered that Gerard seemed amused when she could not bring herself to kill an animal for sport, but did not really think anything else of it. She's like, okay, that's kind of weird. He thought it was funny that she didn't... That she didn't want to do it. I feel like... I don't know. I guess you never felt that way hunting with Casey, though. We were like, I'm not going to do this. Or I did mean, you have to get over a hump? No, definitely. But there's been... I mean, billion Not billions. Dozens of times that I've gone with Casey on a hunt and no. I haven't hunted. Oh, really? I just, yeah. I just watch. I just yeah. sit there. Yeah. I definitely couldn't do that. Like, I would cry. But it's mostly... Like, I stepped on a beetle a few weeks ago <laughs> and I bawled my eyes out. It's mostly, like, with us, it's not that I don't want to hunt or I'm, like, not willing to. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm not as experienced as everyone else, so I don't want to, like, slow them down or, like, ruin an opportunity for them. Mean. So yeah. I just kind of, like, hang out. Yeah. If it's just me and Casey, like, I'll hunt every time. Yeah. No, but, I, I just couldn't do that. But I don't, I mean, I definitely, other than stepping on the beetle, because Cliff was really nice about it, <laughs> but I have been in situations where you know, I'm with, like, a dude I'm dating or something, and I'm like, oh my god, that's so sad, and they're like, ha ha ha, that's so funny, like... I know, that's... Not that you're... Gross. Not that it's cute that I'm crying, like, it's just cute that I'm crying, not that it's like, ha ha, you have <laughs> empathy towards creatures. <laughs> it's <laughs> creatures. I don't know. Well, maybe there's a reason I'm not with those guys anymore. That's very true. And also, <laughs> like, if anyone knows me personally, like, you know, I'm, like, the most empathy for living creature. Like, I am an animal lover through and through, and I get so sad when I see, like, animals being treated a certain way. However, like, I understand. I have a different understanding of, like, hunting than, yeah. like, someone else might, you know. Anyways. We had. Anyway. <laughs> that is, that's a little bit about us. So, Sandy would refer to Gerard as a, quote, sensitive and enthusiastic lover, end quote, who was <laughs> eager to please. <laughs> enthusiastic. He's enthus- an enthusiastic lover. Oh, yeah. I know. He's, I'm sure he's and always he's down to please. He's a 17-year-old guy. After graduating, Gerard would travel with Sandy's family and would become very much a member of her family in their eyes. Mm. However, it was all a cover-up for his true internal thoughts that he had been battling. Struggling with his feelings, Gerard would consider joining the priesthood, despite his relationship with Sandy. He would apply to St. John's Seminary, but was quickly rejected. He would later... He's got a reputation for looking up skirts. Yeah, exactly. 
He would later comment on this rejection, stating, quote, they said I didn't have enough faith. I didn't think it was fair, end quote. Like, well, what have you done to really prove yourself? Like, yeah. you went to Roman Catholic high school. Yeah. Because you were probably, like, forced, forced to by to. your parents. What else have you done to, like, devote yourself to this religion? Yeah. You know? Not looking up skirts. Yeah. Or engaging in premarital sex. A bunch. Or a, a lot of stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know? After this rejection and many years of attending Mass daily, Gerard came to the conclusion that he had been, quote, under a certain Catholic mind control thing, end quote, and decided that he was going to distance himself from the church. So, Pendulum's going to swing the other way completely. Of course. Guarantee it. Because he's not being accepted because he's trying to go all out without mm-hmm. doing any work. Yeah. So now he's like, fuck it. Like, I'm not doing it at all. Yeah. I'm not going to be accepted by the church, so I won't accept the church. Exactly. Yeah. In September of 1964, Gerard would enroll in Brownwood Community College, where he began as a social studies major, but quickly changed his focus to teaching. Gerard would become a fishing guide in the Everglades for a short stint around this time as well, and he would continue indulging in his preferred activities, such as hunting and fishing, on the side in his free time. skirts. I'm never going to let it go. Looking up skirts. (laughs) A neighbor of Gerard's named Gary Hainline, I think it's Hainline, was one of many people that noticed that Gerard was not hunting the usual game you would see someone pursue. Like deer or... Yeah. What else would you do? Gary stated... Yeah, deer, birds. In Florida, I'm not really sure. Alligators, maybe. Hogs. (laughs) Gary stated that Gerard, quote, enjoyed shooting things you can't eat. Songbirds, land crabs, that sort of thing, end quote. Oh, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a hunting thing. It's under the guise of hu- hunting. Absolutely it is. He's not hunting for sport. He's not hunting for food. He's hunting because it gives him permission to shoot an innocent animal. And kill it. And yeah. kill it. Ugh, it's so gross. Gerard was known to have played tennis occasionally with Gary's sister, Lee, And some sources suggested that the two may have been a casual couple at one point, although this was never confirmed, and he was also still seeing Sandy at this point, so Mm -hmm. not sure. Just wanted to put that in there. However, Gerard would later admit around this time that his relationship with Sandy was beginning to feel more like therapy than romance. I'm sure she wanted to, like, talk about her feelings, you know, like people do in a relationship. so, how'd your day go? God, woman, get off my car! God, why do I have to tell you everything? (laughs) This being the case, and with Gerard spending more time with Lee, Gerard was known to have been inappropriate towards her on several occasions. This is, again, the neighbor's sister. Okay. It is said that Gerard would creep around her house at night and masturbate while she undressed. Oh, that's only just a little creepy. Just a tad. Just a tad. It's just, it's just, it was just a little unusual. Yeah, it was just a little weird. I that's... was just... I wasn't sexually assaulting her. I was just masturbating while I was watching her without her knowledge. So fucking gross. (laughs) No. I watched a video the other day of this couple having sex on a Ferris wheel and they got arrested for, uh, like, indecent exposure because there were minors that saw it happen. Good. There was, like, I think two 18-year-olds, a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old or something like that, or a 15-year-old, I don't remember. But, like, the officer was asking them, what did you see? Did it, because they are saying that she just bent over to pick up a pack of cigarettes and he jokingly came up behind her and like humped her twice, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is like in another like thing or whatever, like a little, what is it called? Just the pods, yeah. you know, they, on a ferris wheel. And when the girls went to go look or whatever, when they were like side by side or underneath them or whatever it was, um, the officer asked, what did you see? Did you see like, his genitals or whatever and she said i saw it going in and out oh <laughs> it's disgusting it's disgusting and not only that but apparently one of them had had a traumatic past so it oh. was traumatizing yeah you know there's no and they just thought that they were just having a fun old time and like, like 
What do, you, do they not fucking think? I guess not. <laughs> anyway, so in this case, with the dude masturbating by the window, it's like he might not think that he's doing anything technically inappropriate, but that's it's traumatizing. Huge, yeah, it's that's a, a huge invasion of privacy. Absolutely. That's disgusting. Ugh. Well, it wasn't only Lee that he was doing this and crossing the line with, and whenever he was questioned about these actions later, Gerard would refer to these women as taunting him <gasps> and calling them, quote, sluts and whores, end quote. So he's like, Because they're changing terrible. in the privacy of their bedroom? Literally. <laughs> That's awful. Because they're changing in the privacy of their bedroom. I bet he thinks that ankles are, like, a huge thing, too. It's like a turn-on. probably a foot person. So Gerard would begin to express his true feelings about women to Sandy, frequently crying out in anger about his urges to kill women that aroused him. So he's, like, upset that, like, women, like, he's attracted to women. He's upset that he's attracted. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Sandy would also often witness violent altercations between Gerard and his father and had to, and had to hear stories from Gerard about him and Cindy's role-playing in their relationship. Ew! Okay, no, this isn't going to last long, right? Please don't tell me they get married. So Sandy, knowing way too much and becoming increasingly uncomfortable, decided to break things off with Gerard. <laughs> okay, good. Gosh, I couldn't deal with that. No way. Oh my gosh. So Gerard did not take this well at first, obviously, and he would continuously call her and even, like, show up unannounced, showing, like, stalking behaviors. Oh, no. But he would eventually give up and leave Sandy alone for good, yeah. and nothing bad happened. He also made the happened. right decision, Sandy. Good for you. And yeah. especially at a young age, that might not be easy to do. Absolutely. Now, during his first year enrolled in college, Gerard would open up to his creative writing professor, Dr. Neil Crispo, stating that he wanted to join the army because he, quote, would like to kill things. I even like to shoot at cows now, end quote. At cows? Yeah. So I gotta like, go, Gloria. We got cows. Remember we were talking about that recently? It's like some people join the military just because they will give you a gun and let you shoot it. Yeah. And you don't have to do like anything else. Yeah. Oh, that's not a fair statement. But people do that for the mindset of like, I want to shoot a gun. But a cow? What the fuck I know, it's is awful. a cow doing? Nothing. Just fucking grazing. Just sitting there yeah. mooing mooing <laughs> mooing mooing probably, probably drinking water probably eating some grass <laughs> <laughs> poor little cow i know gerard would later admit however that he was not only killing livestock but he was also engaging in bestiality <gasps> after they died no and i didn't really want to put this in here but i just will that it was essentially like he was like decapitating the animals and then like using <gasps> No, 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 okay, that's enough, yeah. that's enough, that's enough. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. I think we all know what that means. I, reason being is that he's a sick fuck. Like, yeah. yeah, So that's, like, course. the point of saying all that. I'm sure if this is the Patreon-exclusive episode, there would probably be a little bit more detail, yeah. but I appreciate the not <laughs> detail in this moment. Not so, ready for a Patreon again yet. Right. So he, like, said this to his fucking, one of his college professors. Just what? Like, by the way, yeah, he opened up to his profession. That's what I was telling you. Like, he was like, I want to join the military because I'm shooting at cows. And by the way, like, having <laughs> sex with their carcasses. Like, their heads. Yeah. So, regardless of this conversation, Gerardo oh was actually not reported by the professor. He's and like, oh, this guy's funny. So, he should be in creative writing. He should be in <laughs> He should be a creative writer. Have you been to the psychology department? Seriously. So, George, uh, George, Gerard was actually able to return to campus in August of 1965. I can't even believe that. Where he would complete one more semester before leaving to travel with, quote, Sing Out 66, end quote. Sing Out? This is the musical group of the Moral Rearrangement Movement. Sorry. And I'm going to explain what that is because I had to look okay. it up. 
So this movement was initiated by Frank Buchman, an American Lutheran who founded the First Century Christian Fellowship in 1921, which would become to be known as the Oxford Group. I'm not sure if you've heard of the Oxford okay. Group. This would be become transformed under his leadership to the moral rearrangement, which strived to maintain that the practice of high morality in public and private life is the key to world betterment. Okay. That was, like, the theme of, like, what they were trying to get across. Uh-huh. Anyway, they had a singing troupe, which Gerard decided to join in and travel with. Okay. So they were traveling across America so he's trying, trying to, to pre- present their ideas to new people. Yeah. So, again, he's trying to say that he still believes in this kind of thought, right? Well, this is not so much religious, but more of, like, a movement, like a political movement. Okay. But, yeah, he's, but now he's, like, apparently he can sing. Like, it's, like, he's <laughs> just trying anything oh, to, like, now. fit. Yeah. Yeah, I used to be a football player, but now I can sing. Yeah. Among the people in this group, future movie star Glenn Close. <gasps> I love Glenn, Clo- G- Glenn Close. Glenn Close. <laughs> Although Gerard was much more interested in Martha or Marty Louise Fogg, a fellow student two years his junior. Mm. I like it that you use that phrase. Yeah, two years his junior. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was interesting, Glenn Close. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. I. <laughs> Random. She's in Hook. She's in the dude that's in the boo box. Yeah, she's in a lot of stuff. I, I was that. looking her up because I was like, Loki thought she was a guy when I read the name. Then I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> she's really blue yeah. eyes. The two would quickly begin dating. So this is Marty and Gerard. Mm-hmm. Mar- Martha, Marty. Over I like the that summer. For a name for a girl. It's yeah, cute. it's with an I to M A R T I. Mm. So they would quickly begin dating over the summer, and Gerard was even planning on joining the group's European tour. So that he could spend more time with her. Mm-hmm. Although he would contract the measles and he would eventually lose touch with Martha during this time. Huh. Or Marty, excuse me. So she was, she kept traveling and he, yeah, stayed, and he, went he was sick. Okay. After he was back in good health, Gerard would return to college in September of 1966. And the following year in 1967, he would achieve his associate's degree in business admin and would apply and enroll in Florida Atlantic University in January of 1968 where he would seek his B.A. in education. Okay. So FAU is the college. Around this time, young men were being drafted to assist in the Vietnam War, and Gerard had been avoiding being called due to the fact that he was in college full-time with good grades. Mm -hmm. However, his change of program and schools proved to be a lot harder than he originally thought, and his grades began to slip. Uh Uh-oh. Gerard would be called to report for his Army physical in April of 1968, but he would not plan to attend the physical and instead would write up a suicide note, <gasps> leave it in his dorm, and run away. What? So he's like, if they think I'm dead, then they're not going to draft me. But, like, why wouldn't he want to go? He loves guns and he right? loves killing things. So I guess it was, like, maybe not his style. Like, the Vietnam War was not what he was trying to get into. Yeah. It was maybe, like, the regular, like, reserves. Yeah. I don't know, but it was interesting that he was like, I want to join the military because I want a gun. And then when the opportunity literally presented itself, he was like, well, I don't want to die. That's exactly. What he thought. exactly. I don't want to die. And I'm sure he's hearing all this stuff around everywhere about yeah. the ongoing war. It's scary. I feel like if you really wanted to go to school that I feel like that would just from January to April, that's not a long time. It's mm-hmm. not like two semesters worth. I mean, you, he was probably just not even attending class. Probably not. And again, he had gotten his associates in business admin and now he's pursuing education it's much different courses yeah so he's probably overwhelmed maybe in over his head yeah i just feel like that would be a really good motivator to not be drafted yeah <laughs> it certainly would for me yeah for sure gerard's roommate at the time by the name of jerry webster found the note and went to track gerard down 
he would find Gerard at their favorite shooting range and asked him what was going on. He's like, hey, by the way, uh, hey, brother. you wrote a suicide note and you're here. Yeah. So what's, what's going up? on? What's up? Gerard explained to his roommate and friend, well, same person, but roommate and friend. Jerry and Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> like from the movie Soul. <laughs> that, quote, he did it to help him get the deferment, end quote. Hmm. Dr. Raymond Killinger would refer Gerard for emergency psychiatric testing on May 17th, 1968. Yeah. The test would reveal that while Gerard had no true suicidal urges, his, quote, psychological disorganization is severe and his frustration level low, end quote. Ooh, that's, that's kind of heeby a little bit. Lacking empathy, frustration level low, and psychological disorganization is severe. Severe. He can't think clearly clearly in and, most situations yeah, and, or, and organized in an organized fashion but yeah. the fact that he is not frustrated by that that's that's uh, no empathy that's part of that personality kind of schizotypal mm-hmm. um what were we talking about the uh like psychopathy versus uh or psychopathy versus you sociopathy. Know, the so- sociopathy and at th- like at this point in my personal opinion i'm not a professional my personal opinion this is where they should have said you okay we need to take steps to treat this before it gets out of hand yeah because we know how to treat that well maybe they didn't in the 60s but we know what we can do moving forward now that we have a clear diagnosis Mm -hmm. and if we have this left untreated we don't want something negative to happen right like we always say like not everyone with diagnoses like this are gonna go on to do something like this yeah but Getting treatment is, like, the best option, because mm-hmm. things like this don't just go away on their own. Yeah, I feel like treatment was a little rough back then. I'm pretty sure they oh, used to course. give, you know, people with mental disorders, like, LSD and shit. Shock treatment or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe not shock treatment, but, oh. yeah. So, we know that Gerard had been experimenting with wearing women's underwear in the past when he was in a, his preteen years, and actually, it seems like he was also doing it up to this point as well. Mm-hmm. He would later claim that this was also another tactic to keep him from being drafted, was the wearing women's clothing. So he was trying to make other people feel uncomfortable? I think he was trying to not be allowed into the army because it was like really don't ask, don't tell maybe right. back then. I think he was like, oh, if I'm like kind of outlandish with like my views or like my yeah, dress. My, my identity or yeah. my sexuality or orientation. Mm-hmm. Gerard would, however, receive a, quote, one Y deferment for, quote, mental, moral, or physical reasons. Okay. So he got a deferment, and it was meant for mental reasons, essentially. But it was called one Y, which I've never heard of that. One Y. Mm-hmm. Maybe one year. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, write us. Right. Yeah, let us know. Although Gerard claims that he was, quote, very open about it, end quote, referring to his wearing women's clothing, nobody at FAU recalled ever being the wiser, even his roommate. They were like, never saw that. Never saw that. Never even had an that. Don't know where that came from. Yeah. The claim that Gerard tried to use this to avoid war only came way later when police searched his mother's home and found photos of Gerard dressed in lingerie. He was like, oh, those are from the war. Exactly. He's like, oh, I, d- I only did that because of this and that and the other. Meanwhile, while all of these things are going on with Gerard, his parents' 22-year-long marriage was crumbling. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah, shocker. Gerard Sr. had been heavily drinking and seeing multiple other women around this time or for a while. And he would ultimately lose his job in May of 1968, and things would only get worse from there. Doris would file for divorce on July 2nd, 1968, and Gerard Sr. would move out. After hearing about this, Gerard Jr. would quit his construction job and leave for a hunting trip to Michigan. So he's, like, on the drop of a hat, 
something's going wrong in my family. My parents are getting divorced. I'm quitting my job. I'm going hunting. He wants to blow off steam. Yeah. That's what he does. Yeah. Which is interesting that his frustration is typically low. Yeah, exactly. But is it because he's engaging in activities like this that kind of create that? He has an outlet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, once his hunting trip was over, Gerard would return to Florida, but this time he was not alone. Gerard and his now fiance, what? Marty, would arrive in Florida <gasps> Marty. and announce their surprise engagement. Marty, come on. She had gotten back at some point during this time. They reconnected and they got engaged within like a few weeks. Ugh. The two would quickly get married in December of the same year, mm-hmm. 1968. Mm-hmm. So they they announced their surprise engagement around, like, the beginning of August, like, late July. They're married in December. They, like, turn around in a circle. They're like, surprise, we're engaged. Surprise, we're married. Yeah. Surprise, we're married. Surprise, there's a baby. <laughs> exactly. Gerard and Marty would move in with Gerard's now single mother and would both return to FAU to study in January of 1969. Mm. Getting closer to the end of his degree, Gerard would be assigned as a student teacher at Plantation High School on February 27th, but he would quickly be removed from the school after persistent efforts to, quote, impose his moral and political views on the students, end quote. This place is called Plantation, Plantation. High School. I was literally just about to say that. And they're, they kicked him out because he's he- trying to impose... <laughs> His immoral viewpoints and political standpoints on the children? Are you kidding me? Tell me it's not called that anymore. Did you Google it? I didn't. Do you want to look it up? Yeah. Let's pause. LOL. It's called Plantation High School because it's in Plantation, Florida. LOL. So I was like, damn, I'm a dick. You can't, I mean, I understand that you can't rename the entire city, but you could probably rename the school. You could. But also, this is a perfect example. What were we talking about in the most recent mental breakdown about... If you don't know something, look it up. If you're wrong, yeah, ex- admit Dun- that you were wrong Dunning and accept Kruger. the truth and do better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just do better I mean? from here on out. Perfect example. Now, I mean, clearly they know that the school's called Plantation, so they know they better do better. Yeah. <laughs> so the principal of this school would ask Gerard to leave in just a few weeks in, citing, quote, totally inappropriate behavior, end quote. That was I could guess. I don't understand why he would pursue education other than to be around girls. No, absolutely. Girls. And he it's is gross. trying to, again, impose his moral political views on the students. He just wants that sense of power. He doesn't yeah. really want to educate people on, like, the school system mm-hmm. and the curriculum. He wants to educate people on what he thinks is right. Right. <laughs> so being kicked out of his student teaching program left Gerard without a job for several months, although he was applying and having no luck, mm-hmm. and he would spend a lot of his downtime in the Everglades or just at home. Having all of the free time in the world to overthink, Great. Gerard would quickly spiral with thoughts of his failure as a priest and now a teacher. Ugh. He would later admit that during this time, he frequently found himself, quote, convinced that indecent women and prostitutes should be destroyed for the welfare of society, end quote. What a thought. For the welfare of society. Again, your brain can make you believe fucking anything. No empathy for the people. No, that, at all. That he's, that he's presuming, first of all. He's making assumptions. Yeah. Like, and second of all, even if he is talking about people in sex work, like... You don't have a job, bro. Yeah, literally. You're hanging out in the Everglades. Why don't you get off your ass and do something? He's putting, like, every single woman in a box. Yeah. And saying, like, you guys are all whores, or whatever, like he was saying earlier. (laughs) You're all whores. Whores. Yeah, it's definitely like an Elliot Roger. Yeah, Where he only saw women as a thing, not people. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Gerard's parents would finalize their divorce in September of 1969, and at the same time, Gerard would return to Florida once again to start the new semester. Three days after Gerard began school, on September 8th, news was circling about a missing woman that Gerard knew from his past. Lee Hainline, Gerard's old neighbor's little sister, had married a man by the name of Charles Bonadies on August 21st, 1969. Their relationship was known as being tumultuous from the beginning, with frequent fights between the two. When police began to look into Lee's life, they found out that Gerard had offered her $20,000 at one point in exchange for her joining the CIA. What? He was like, I'm going to give you this money so that you join the CIA? Yeah, he's like, join the CIA. Like, I guess he was like, do me a favor. Here's the, I'll, I'll pay you and I'll get you a good job or something. I don't know. Whoa. It's very strange. That is strange. Lee's husband, Charles, hearing this, laughed it off and told her to just forget about it. Yeah. On September 8th, again, three days after Gerard returned to school, Charles came home to find a note from Lee stating that she had gone to Miami. Lee would never return, and her car would later be found in a Fort Lauderdale parking lot. What? Trying that is That is very strange. Yes. Trying all options, Gary would phone Gerard and ask if he knew anything about Lee leaving to Miami. Gary's the brother, right? Gary's the brother. Yeah. Gerard told Gary that Lee had called him and told him that she was leaving Charles and asked Gerard for a ride to the airport where she was planning on catching a flight to Cincinnati. Okay. So, okay. Wait, like, why are you calling an, him and she, asking she him left for a ride? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she said she left a note saying she's going to Miami, but then said she needed a flight to Cincinnati. She left a note for her husband saying she was going to Miami. Right. Now Gerard is saying that she called Gerard and saying, can I meet you in Miami? And can you take me to the airport? Because I'm, going, Cause to I'm going to Cincinnati. Yeah, exactly. And But at the same time, you did say that her and her husband had kind of a bad relationship, yes. right? Okay. Gerard would agree. This is his words. That he would say, oh, I agreed to take her to the airport. But Lee never called me back to give me the details of what time. So I huh. never saw her. It would make more sense had he dropped her off. Yeah, exactly. Or at least in the area. He's like, I dropped off at the airport. That would like that would be like a good alibi. Yeah, like, but I don't know if they, I don't know if they had security cameras then. They that's probably true. did. And so I'm thinking like, well, if you say that you just dropped her off like down the street from the airport and then yeah, she walked, that's true. I mean, do your due diligence here, right? But like, well, he's dumb. So and I think it would make sense for her to tell her husband that she went to Miami, but then flew somewhere else so that he doesn't go looking for if her she, in Miami. If she really wanted to leave, if him she for really good. wanted to, yeah. But why him. would she call? I guess. She called Gerard because he's close to Miami, maybe. Yeah. But, like, she could have called Gerard's mom. Like, yeah. she knows her, you know? How did Gary know that it was Gerard? Or he just brought it up in conversation? He, well, he was, like, if she's in Miami, she might have, like, reconnected with Gerard. Because, like, obviously, like, he knows he's that in, he's down there. Yeah. So he's, he was just trying all, all line, like, lines of communication. He's like, let me just... Let me just ask anybody, you know? Right. And where was she living with the husband? This was in... They were in... in Georgia? No, they were in Fort Lauderdale, like, with... Like, where they where Gerard grew up and all that stuff. Oh, okay. And I think that Gary was really just trying all avenues because he was like, I don't know what the fuck else to do. Maybe, yeah. maybe she called Gerard, you right. know? So anyway, he called her, he called him, excuse me. Gerard would say, oh, you know, the whole thing about the airport. Well, Charles, thinking that his wife actually left him, filed for divorce in the following <gasps> October 10th, 1970. You can, yeah, claim spousal abandonment. Lee would never be heard from again, and nothing else would ever come up regarding her disappearance. Is it still a cold case? Yeah. <gasps> oh my god. I know. That's awful. It's awful. And we'll talk a little bit more about it later. Yeah. Four months after being let go from his internship, Gerard would successfully apply for and receive a second teaching internship at Stranahan High School. He would begin teaching geography on April 2nd, 1970, and his fellow teachers would quickly take notice of his poor performance 
stating that he was arrogant and, quote, very limited, end quote, on the subject knowledge that he taught. That's that Dunning-Kruger. That's yeah. him thinking, like, oh, I just know everything about everything, so yeah. college is going to be a breeze. Exactly. Ugh. And it's like, again, like I said, he's not interested in teaching the curriculum. Yeah. He just wants to people to listen to his point of view and agree mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. Just seven weeks into this internship, on November 11th, 1969, Principal Richard Goodhart made the decision to remove Gerard from his position, stating, quote, I told him when he left that he'd better not let me hear of his trying to get a job with any authority over people, or I'd do anything I could to see that he didn't get it. Ooh. So he knows. Yeah. Like, he can see right the fuck through him. You're a phony. That guy's a phony. Gerard would drop out of school, citing marital problems as the reason, and years later, he would tell psychiatrists that he was barred from teaching, quote, because they only wanted black people, end quote. Oh my god. Just pulls it out of fucking nowhere. Again, it's, I love that now this is the second time, right? So the panty thing, not his fault, right? He's trying to stay out of the army. There's lots of hooers, yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about the, the wanking it off with the with the neighbor not waking going. it off no with the panty thing to not go into the army no, and then yeah. now that like it's everybody it's it can't possibly be the fact that he's not equipped yeah, it's to never deal with this job yeah yeah never his fault mm-hmm. everyone else around me is the asshole yeah not me for sure it's not that i'm not smart enough is what he's trying to say yeah no absolutely okay ready yes on december 18th 1969 22 year old carmen marie halleck had lunch with her sister-in-law and was discussing a date she had planned for that evening. She explained to her sister-in-law that she was meeting a teacher who had offered her a job involving, quote, some kind of undercover work for the government. Oh, no. Oh, no. She explained that this guy told her the position included international travel and, quote, lots of money, end quote. You know what I'm realizing right now? That's probably why Gary called his brother, uh, Gerard, to ask about Lee, is because, remember, he offered Lee that money oh, to go yeah. to the CIA thing. Duh, that makes sense. And so I bet the husband was like, well, let me call Gary and see if his brother knows. Maybe she took him up on the offer for the money or something, you know? Gary and Gerard aren't brothers. I'm Gary sorry, and not Lee Gary and Lee. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. <laughs> no, but you great. know what I'm saying. Yes, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So yeah, I didn't even think about that. So again, uh, Carmen with her sister-in-law is telling her that this guy offered her this job. It's a lot of money. It's the MO. That's what I'm yeah, getting yeah. at. The next night, Carmen was scheduled to work a shift as a cocktail waitress, but she would never arrive for her shift. She would not be seen for multiple days, and once she was not heard from on Christmas Day, her family would use a spare key and enter her apartment in search of her. Mm. Upon entering, they came upon the bathtub completely full and her dog unfed. A few days later, Carmen's vehicle would be found in a nearby parking lot, and her body would never be located. Oh my gosh. That's awful. I can't imagine... First of all, not knowing what happened to your loved one, but, mm-hmm. like, and still not being able to have some kind of closure. Like, after all like these have, years. have them home. That was know? in 1970, by the way. <sighs> Gerard would argue his removal from school and petition FAU administrators to change his records from withdrawal to, quote, incomplete, and <laughs> asked if he would be able to remain studying. Like, you're the one that fucking dropped out. Yeah. Like, and now oh, you're asking for a second chance? I have marital problems. He's like, it's too hard. It's <laughs> Like... I tripped on a rock yesterday. Yeah, seriously. The couple would, not the couple, the college would agree, and Gerard and his wife would both return to school at FAU. Although they were both together around this time, Marty would ultimately file for divorce on May 2nd, citing Gerard's, quote, extreme cruelty, end quote. So who knows what was going on behind closed doors with them. Yeah. Oh, gosh. 
Gerard would react, react to this divorce by going to Europe and North Africa on a month-long trip. That's like a theme, too, is him experiencing bad news and then running away. Yes. But keep that in mind, by the way. He went to Europe and North Af- Africa for a month-long trip, okay? Okay. By October 1970, Gerard would take a job as a security guard at Florida Light and Powder Power in order to make tuition money. Okay. While working there, he met secretary Teresa Dean, and the two would quickly become engaged. Okay. Right. Teresa, see you. It would be almost a year later, in August of 1971, that Gerard would graduate from FAU with his degree in geography, and he and Teresa would get married. According to Gerard, his second marriage was much better than his first. He would say that Teresa was very willing to comply with his sexual demands and also shared his passion for fishing. Oh, wow. That's all I need. That's what my, yeah, that's what my, uh, my online dating profile says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Comply with my sexual demands. And and I love fishing. (laughs) Second to the, to the, to the demands. Yeah. (laughs) Not being able to pursue his career as a teacher and having a good time at his security job, Gerard decided to pursue a career with law enforcement. Why? Now, we're going to assume at this point he's responsible for the disappearances of both Leah and Armin. So just keep that in mind. Like, mm-hmm. they haven't been kind of closed. Like, the case is kind of. They haven't yeah. been closed. But there is a little bit of circumstantial stuff that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. On September 3rd, 1971, Gerard would get a job with the Wilton Manors Police Department and was sent back to Broward County Community College or I think it's Broward Community College, to the school's police academy. He would graduate from this on December 17th, 1971, and would fall into his six-month probationary term at the job. Three weeks into Gerard working this new job, another woman would disappear. Belinda Hudgens was a 22-year-old cocktail waitress who was married to a man that was a known drug addict. On January 5th, 1972, Belinda's husband and her two-year-old daughter, reportedly watched her get into a vehicle with a strange man at the wheel, and she was never seen again. When questioned by police about her disappearance, Belinda's husband stated that she, quote, had her own lifestyle and did what she wanted to do, end quote. So she might be a a sex worker. Yeah, and I think that he was like, it wasn't uncommon for her to just get in the car with someone and go. Mm -hmm. While in Wilton Manors, Gerard proved himself yet again to be poorly suited for the job he was doing. Mm -hmm. Chief Bernard Scott would tell reporters, quote, he used poor judgment, did dumb things, I didn't want him around, end quote, before letting Gerard go just six months into this position. Do you think, along with disorders, there might be, like, some type of a developmental disorder? I could, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or, but I don't know if it's necessarily, like, he's lacking the skill. I think he just lacks the effort. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he knows how to do it. I just feel like he doesn't want to fucking do it. Like, he doesn't want to work hard. It just sounds like like a defiant disorder of some kind, but just into adulthood. Yeah. And what would that be? You know? That's what I mean. I don't know. That's a good point. It might be like a comorbidity with something else that he yeah. has. Yeah. His colleagues would actually also refer to Gerard as, quote, badge happy, end quote, and Ugh. obsessed with writing traffic tickets. Like, he just had to have the superiority, like, yeah. people. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Ex-FBI agent Robert Ressler... By the way, have you heard that name before? Because I have. Wrestler, yeah. Would state that Gerard would pull women over just to ask them on dates. What? Like he would literally like pull. Is that hey people. baby? Yeah. Uh, like that's you so know how dis- fast you were going. Disgusting. You could go that fast all the way to my apartment. Here's my address. <laughs> yeah. 
Years later, detectives actually suggested that one of the women who was never publicly identified vanished shortly after being pulled over by Gerard. Oh my god, that is terrifying. It reminds me of mom. Yeah. Like, side note, our mom got pulled over when you were little, right? And if I'm not mistaken, you were in the backseat with Cameron and dad, all three of y'all, or just you and dad? I think it was me and dad. And she was driving, mom was driving, and she went through this neighborhood that we live next to, and the cop pulled her over, claimed that she was speeding, she wasn't. He saw dad in the backseat, gave her a warning, and like, then that guy was later, like, arrested for soliciting assault. sex yeah. from single women in their cars by themselves. Yes. Gross. Yeah. And we had this <laughs> big old, like, travel van, so, and with curtains, you know, like, from the 90s, and so, yeah, that makes sense. Like, when you're walking past, you wouldn't see like into the no else in the Yeah, car. you wouldn't see into the van. Yeah. And she didn't have a passenger with her because dad was sitting in the back. Yeah. Ugh. It's scary. That is so creepy. So, with all this uh, shit that Gerard's doing at work, Chief Scott was ready to fire him on March 16th, 1972, but Gerard actually surprised him by winning a commendation for a drug arrest, ultimately saving his job. Having the spotlight on him did not stop Gerard from making dumb mistakes while on the job, and he was called into Chief Scott's office on April 19th. According to Chief Scott, Gerard begged for another chance, quote, almost with tears in his eyes, end quote, and he ended up not letting Gerard go that day either. He was just like, oh, give me He's 24 crying. more hours. <laughs> He's crying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to use my chair. Yeah. The following day, actually, Chief Scott found out that Gerard had actually applied for a different job with the Broward County Sheriff's Department and fired him on the spot. He was like, fuck you then. You're going to apply for other jobs? You're begging to keep this one? Like, God. seriously? Unfortunately for Gerard, his new application would not work out for him either, as he would fail the mandatory psychological exam. Okay, here we go again. Another red flag. Another red flag with law enforcement that can do something about it. Yeah. And they're not. And they're not gonna. <laughs> I mean, it's not their job to get him, like, into treatment, but still, like, they have the knowledge they that have he's the knowledge. not psychologically fit. And so does the military, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Shit. And the professor, the college professor. Yeah. <laughs> Gerard would apply to many other departments around the area, and each would call Chief Bernard Scott for his opinion. Bernard stated, quote, I told them I would put a... I would put on a uniform and walk the streets myself before I would have him back, end quote. He's like, do not hire him. Do not hire him. On June 30th, 1972, Gerard would be hired by Sheriff Richard Crowder in Martin County. A standard background check showed no criminal record for Gerard, and upon applying, Gerard would include a glowing letter from Chief Bernard Scott, stating that Gerard was a star employee and one of the best he had ever seen. Bullshit. Of course this was falsified by Gerard. <laughs> It's like everyone knows he's experiencing whatever he's experiencing except for him. Except for him. And again, that's that lack of, what is it, like low frustration level, but psychological disorganization. Yeah. It's just, he doesn't get it. It's just all over the place. And there's not one linear thought that's like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Or maybe my experiences all have one thing in common. Me. Me. Exactly. You're the common denominator. You're the problem. Yeah. And it's like, he's if he's not willing to change anything, this is going to keep happening. Right. But he just lacks that self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now that we know that this letter was falsified, obviously, it actually wouldn't be found out by the department until a month later. So he was able to work there for a month. For like, a month? The thinking that he had this glowing review from his last ch- uh, chief. <sighs> I'm sure that they were like, there's no way this guy has a glowing review. Let me look into this. Yeah. So at this point, again, we know that Gerard has had some victims, but nobody else was the wiser about what was going on behind the scenes, because there's been no found disappearing women, you know? Yeah, no evidence linking yeah. him to anything. 
Around this time, Gerard explains that he grew tired of killing single victims, and he wanted to move on to, quote, doing doubles, end quote. Doing doubles? Like, two women or man and woman? Two women. He stated about this, quote, Doing doubles is far more difficult than doing singles, but on the other hand, it also puts one in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some very lively discussions about which of the victims will get to be killed first. When you have a pair of teenage bimbolinas bound hand and foot and ready for a session with a skinning knife, neither one of the little devils wants to be the one to go first, and they don't mind telling you quickly why their best friend should be the one to die, end quote. That is some sadistic shit. Sinister as fuck. Like, that takes some thought. So clearly he is able to have a linear thought. Yeah, exactly. Just when it pertains to anything that interests him. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, fucking And the terrible. lack of empathy in those sentences. And the thing that, like, makes my stomach churn about that statement is that it's probably a little bit of truth behind it. Oh, yeah. And he's using it. To, like, get under your skin and, like, yeah. tell you, like, this is what happens when I have the control and people are terrified. Yeah. And Ugh, that especially me out. over something that you can say. Like, he can say that and know that it has control over people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. Like, when I read that, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Disgusting. While there <laughs> is not a specific timeline to show when Gerard began killing two victims at one time... He is thought to have been linked to the 1966 disappearances of 21-year-old Nancy Leichner and 20-year-old Pamela Nader. The two women would disappear from a picnic they were having at the Ocala National Forest. The case is still unsolved to this day. Jesus. On December 29, 1970, so a few years prior to Gerard getting the job with the phony letter recommendation, 9-year-old Wendy Stevenson and 9-year-old Peggy Ron would vanish from Pompano Beach. The following day, a clerk at a nearby convenience store would report a man that was buying ice cream for two young girls on the previous afternoon. Ew, that's so creepy. It's so creepy. The clerk positively identified the two girls as being Wendy and Peggy and described the man they were with as in his 20s, about six feet tall, and around 200 pounds. The girls are still classified as missing to this day, although Gerard would be publicly accused of these crimes at his later hearing. Okay. But, cold case. I didn't realize we were in L.A. Yeah. Many years after his incarceration, Gerard would write in a letter, quote, I am annoyed by all this murder talk. Peggy and Wendy just happened along at a time when I was curious about Fish's craving for the flesh of young girls. Fish referring to Albert Fish. That was not the part of the quote. I was adding that in. Oh, my God. Quote, I assure you these girls were not molested sexually. I found both of them very satisfactory, particularly with sautéed onions and peppers, end quote. He is like fish. He's trying to emulate fish. He's, I think he's trying to, I don't think this is true. I, I think yeah. he's saying it for the shock factor. Yeah, I agree. Because there's nothing else that indicates that he engaged but, in cannibalism besides yeah. this one fucking sentence. <laughs> Which is very eerily similar to the Albert Fish letter. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's disgusting. Where he said, I assure she died a virgin. Yeah. You know? Like, I don't fucking care about that or whatever. Like, fuck you. Like, I only just wanted to eat children. <sighs> now, we're back to the present time. So this is on the afternoon of July 21st, 1972. Gerard came across two female hitchhikers, Nancy Ellen Trotter, 18, and Paula Sue Wells, 17, while he was on official police duty. Gerard would pick the pair up and drive them to their intended destination in Stewart, Florida. Gerard warned the two young girls of the dangers of hitchhiking 
and during their conversation, he came to realize that neither of the girls were Florida natives, and they intended to hang out at Jensen Beach on the following day. Oh, that's so scary. But he's a police officer. You would think that you could trust a police officer. Mm -hmm. And these girls are 18 and 17. It's true. Like, you know, again, it's just, they're young, never had probably maybe any run-ins with the law at this point. I mean, you know. And they're not native to Florida. He knows that now, so Mm -hmm. he's like, they're going to not know their way around. Yeah, I just mean that there's no reason to, like, distrust him. Yeah, no, of course. Oh, in their eyes. Yeah. Upon hearing their plans, Gerard suggested that he drive the two girls to the beach the next day, to which they agreed. The following morning, Gerard met the girls exactly when and where he said he would, but this time he was not in his police uniform and instead in regular clothing. It's like I'm off duty. He was also driving his own vehicle, but he explained to the girls that he was indeed still on duty, just working undercover. Okay. Because regular police officers just do that, Just do that. (laughs) Well, he can't bloody his uniform. Yeah, no, exactly. Or his car. Shortly after the girls got into the car, Gerard began driving the wrong direction, telling them he wanted to show them, quote, an old Spanish fort, (sighs) end quote, on New Hutchinson Island. I would jump out of the car. Well, it's probably locked. While on the way to this destination, Gerard would warn the girls once again about the dangers of hitchhiking, telling them they could be, quote, sold into white slavery, end quote. I also hate that on top of this, this guy's a fucking racist. No, literally. It's, like, the worst. <laughs> He's, like, the worst of every fucking He's the worst part. He's probably the worst human. Yeah. Almost as soon as he said this, Gerard would stop the vehicle and handcuffed and gag both girls. It was not clear which girl he took out of the vehicle first, but what we do know is that Gerard grabbed one of the girls and took her to a large tree, subsequently tying her legs to the trunk of it and binding a noose around her neck. The noose was attached to a branch tall enough that it forced the girl to have to stand up all the way, like, on her a platform to something. not be strangled. Oh Gerard then took the other girl to a different tree a short distance away and tied her up extremely similarly. So, again, both girls found themselves having to stand on narrow branches in order to keep their body weight up to avoid being strangled. It's awful. Gerard then informed both girls that he intended to sexually assault them and then murder them. At this same moment, Gerard received an urgent radio dispatch telling him to report to the station immediately. Gerard told the girls, quote, I gotta go, end quote, but not to, quote, try to run away because I'm not going to be very far down the road, end quote. So he's like, I'm, he, he has to leave them there. Like, he's, he is on duty, and he just got a call. He's like, I have to go. Don't <laughs> fucking move. Like, does he have his uniform with him? Oh my I god, guess. how does he do this? Nearly two hours later, Gerard returned to the scene of the crime to see both of the girls missing. What? He would immediately return to his house and phone his station, asking to speak with Sheriff Robert Crowder. He informed his boss, quote, I've done something very foolish. You'll be mad at me, end quote. What? What? Okay, this is wild already. What's going to happen? Gerard then went on to explain to Robert that he had taken it upon himself to teach two young girls, quote, a lesson, end quote, on the risks of hitchhiking, but he claimed that he, quote, overdid the job, end quote, stating that he abandoned the two girls in the swampland area of Hutchinson Island. He's like, I just dumped them the out there telling that, exactly. He's like, I just dumped them out there and told them that hitchhiking is dangerous and I was teaching them a lesson. Yeah, I was going to come back for them, but now they're missing. Robert and his lieutenant, Melvin Waldron, immediately headed towards Florida State Road A1A, where they came across a partially gagged teenage girl with her hands behind her back, attempting to swim down the river. Oh my gosh, with her hands behind her back? Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. If I if the, uh, 
if I was threatening to be sexually assaulted, murdered, I'd probably do the same shit. Absolutely. That and then some. And I felt my, I saw my escape route. Absolutely. Yeah. Or my escape opportunity. Absolutely. What does he think is going to happen when they find the girls, though? Yeah, They're just exactly. going to ID him. Yeah. <laughs> Idiot. The officers pulled over to see the girl getting out of the water by the bank and attempting to, like, get their attention. Like, they kind of saw each other at the same time. Yeah. Upon removing the gag from her mouth, the girl identified herself as Nancy and told the officers that her friend was somewhere in the forest. Officers informed her that Paula had been located already by a trucker and was already safe in custody. Oh my gosh, that is so scary. The two girls would be taken in for questioning where they both explained their situation. Both girls stated that they managed to escape by grinding their bindings and loosening their gags slowly. The entire time while doing this, they were able to maintain their balance on the narrow branches that they had been put on. Those are badass bitches. Bad bitches alert. Like, if they had slipped at any point, they would have died. Oh my gosh. And then, oh oh my god, I'm not even gonna Can you imagine, like, just, and then, and then being there with with your friend? friend? I know, exactly. God, it's so, it's, it's heroic what they did. Both girls were able to provide a detailed description of their attacker and his vehicle before formally identifying Gerard Schaefer as the perpetrator. Lucky Zessa. <laughs> when questioned, Gerard stuck to his story that he had overreacted in a lesson he was trying to teach the girls. Yeah. However, his story would obviously not be believed, and he was immediately dismissed from the force and placed under arrest. Robert Crowder instructed his officers to charge Gerard with false imprisonment and aggravated assault. Two weeks after his arrest, Gerard would post his $15,000 bail, which would be the equivalent of about $110,000 today. Mm -hmm. Due to making bail, Gerard would be released while he awaited trial that would not be scheduled until November, November, five months later. Please. Come on. Are they going to monitor him? (laughs) He's clearly a flight risk. Clearly. Clearly a flight risk. He would return home where he lived with his second wife, Teresa, and her and her parents would recall Gerard not acting any different. In fact, they believed his claims that he was just trying to teach the girls a lesson. They were like, oh, he obviously didn't do anything wrong, or he's not broken up about it. He's not freaking out. Yeah. Remember? Low frustration. <laughs> Low frustration. He's not worried about it at all. He's going to get out of this pickle. While awaiting trial, Gerard got and worked a job at Quick Check. And on September 27th, 1972, again, while still awaiting trial, Gerard would abduct two teenage friends, Susan Carroll Place, 17, and Georgia Marie Jessup, 16. He's still going to commit crimes like this? The two were attending an adult education center in Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, excuse me, and Gerard just so happened to be there that day as well. Gerard would introduce himself to the girls as, quote, Jerry Shepard, end quote, Stating that he was from Colorado and that he intended to return home following a trip to Mexico. It's just interesting because not only was his college roommate named Jerry, but his said his last name was Shepard, and that's super close to Gerard Schaefer, Jerry Shepard. Like, it, yeah. he didn't do much work there. Yeah. <laughs> to change He's like, no, I totally said that my name was Gerard Shepard. Schaefer. Schaefer. They just didn't hear me right. Yeah. The afternoon of the disappearance, Susan's mom remembered coming home to find her daughter cleaning her room, with Georgia sitting in a chair hanging out with her. Mm -hmm. She also noticed an older man in the room as well, who the girls introduced to her as Jerry. Susan told her mom that the three of them were planning on going, quote, to the beach and to play guitar, end quote. Okay. And although Susan's mom was suspicious, Jerry assured her that his intentions were pure. Even so, she made sure to write on the license plate of his vehicle while the three took off. Good mom. So she thinks he's in his early 20s, and the girls are 17 and 16. And he's, like, 20... 
almost late 20s? He's 20, yeah, 26 at this time. Okay. So he's not in his early 20s, he's in mid-20s, but still, 17 and 16 are young for him to be hanging out there. That's a 10-year age gap. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very significant time in your life, you know? Definitely. On top of being a little suspicious about this guy's age and all that jazz, Susan's mom was actually already kind of thinking in the back of her mind that her daughter was planning on running away. Okay. So she was also kind of worried, like, oh my god, I hope she doesn't, like, run away with this guy. There's a strange dude. Yeah. Yeah. But while they were saying goodbye, Susan assured her mom that she would be gone, quote, just for a little while, end quote, and would keep in touch. Okay. The girls would leave the house around 8.45 p.m., and when she hadn't heard from her daughter in four days, Susan's (sighs) mother contacted Paula's mom, who said that she had assumed her daughter had run away after not hearing from her since the 27th. There must have been some history there with the girl's behavior or something. It was at this point that both girls were reported missing to the Oakland Park Police. Susan's mom provided police with the license plate number she wrote down, and the plate was traced to an entirely separate model of vehicle that belonged to a St. Petersburg resident who did not resemble Jerry Shepard, and who also had an alibi for the night the girls went missing. Hmm. Without having any more leads and not getting anywhere with the Jerry Shepard name, by the beginning of 1973, the case had become cold. That's that. That's that? That's that for now. On October 26th, 14-year-old Mary Alice Briscolina and 13-year-old Elise Lena Farmer went missing. Elise's family reported her missing the following day, while Mary's family did not report her for a week, assuming that she had run away from home. The two had vanished while hitchhiking to a commercial boulevard restaurant from a motel. Friends and family of the girls were questioned following their disappearances, and police were informed that the two girls frequently visited an apartment rented by the older sister of Mary's boyfriend. Okay. And that a man they were called by the name of Gary Shepard was hanging around a lot. Gary now this time? Yeah. It's always a Gary. They also stated that this man had claimed to be a, quote, ex-Wilton Manors police officer, end quote. Hmm. So they like, literally you, telling them her whole life. Like, why? Why would you say that? Three months later, on January 11th, 1973, 19-year-old Colette Marie Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox, also 19, disappeared while hitchhiking from Sioux City, Iowa, to Florida. Her last name's Goodenough? It's literally Goodenough. That's amazing. Yeah. Both of the women were last seen alive in Biloxi, Mississippi. During the time of the disappearance, Gerard was out awaiting trial still, and he was known to have made many long-distance phone calls from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to his Florida home shortly before the girls went missing. What? So he was, like, there. How was he allowed to travel? I don't understand. I don't fucking know. Because he's an ex-police officer. That's Hollywood. Sure. In December of 1972, Gerard appeared in court in relation to the abductions of Nancy Trotter and Paula Wells. His attorney had offered a plea bargain that he strongly suggested Gerard take. This plea deal would mean that Gerard would plead guilty to just one charge of aggravated assault, for which he would receive a sentence of one year in jail, with the possibility of parole after just six months. Tell me he filed a non-guilty plea. Following, excuse me, following his release, he would be on probation for three years if he took the plea deal. Okay. Gerard would agree to this, and on December 22nd, Judge D.D. Smith stated to Gerard, quote, it is beyond the court's imagination to conceive how you, you were such a foolish and astronomic jackass as you were in this case, end quote. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I was thinking that he his narcissism would just not allow him to... To accept it, yeah. yeah. He would go through a non-guilty uh, I could plea. see that. The judge would allow Gerard's formal sentencing to be postponed until the holidays were over, oh, and Gerard for- would begin his sentence in Martin County Jail on January 15th, 1973. Yeah, that was just for everyone's convenience. Yeah, for sure. 
Upon leaving court on December 22nd, Gerard told several reporters, quote, I made a stupid mistake. There was no sex involved. No one was hurt, end quote. He had to say that. Yeah. No one, there was no sex involved and no one was hurt. I'm sorry, not sex, rape. There was no rape involved and no one was hurt because you got a fucking dispatch call. Yeah. What would have happened if they didn't call you? It's the only reason that those girls were alive. Stupid. In March of 1973, Susan Place's mother, Lucille, discovered a letter signed by one Jerry Shepard in her daughter's bedroom. Ew. She would follow the address on the letter and speak to the building manager. Jerry Shepard had registered at this property under his real name, Gerard Schaefer. LOL. Upon hearing this and learning that this man had recently been sent to jail for an abduction and attempted murder of two young girls, Mm -hmm. her and her husband, Ira, drove around the county looking for a similar license plate. Okay. While driving around, Lucille realized that the police may have been searching for the license plate match in a different county. Oh. Upon relaying this new information to police, they discovered the plate actually belonged to a blue-green Dotson registered to a Gerard Schaefer, and his address matched the return address on the letter. Hmm. When questioned in jail, Gerard denied ever encountering Susan or her parents, even though he was identified via photograph by a Wilton Manors personnel. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. That's him. That's him. On the afternoon of April 1st, 1973, a father and son were searching for discarded cans when they discovered the extremely decomposed bodies of two people in a hole in Oak Hammock Park, Florida. Mm. Both victims had been bound and murdered, with their spinal cords severed at the lumbar and cervical sections. Oh my gosh. The bodies would be identified as as those of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup by Medical Examiner's Department Dr. Richard Dr. Richard Sovron. I think I see his last name. Sovron? Soviron? Sorry, dude. Shortly after the bodies were identified, Gerard was informed of the discovery, and he would immediately request the representation of a public defender, being one Elton Schwartz. Due to the location of the bodies and the similarities in the murders and abductions that Gerard was already doing time for, police were able to obtain a search warrant for Gerard's house and vehicle, as well as the home of his mother, because he was living there. Yeah. Inside a locked bedroom at Gerard's mother's home, police found 300 pages of personal stories that Gerard had typed out over the years. These pages included details of kidnapping, torture, sexual assault, and ultimately murder of a number of teenage girls and young women whom he commonly referred to as, quote, whores, sluts, and harlots, When he's talking about murdering them, he's referring to them as those things. He's a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. What what, what does that make you? Jesus. Also included in these writings, Gerard stated that he would commonly force his victims to drink beer or wine while they stood balancing on various items, hoping not to be strangled. Because it would fuck up their balance. Terrifying. He stated that he frequently returned to the scenes of the crimes for weeks and even months after the murders to commit necrophilia or to extract teeth from the skull. This is I all in his might writings? have left out necrophilia in the content warning. I'm very sorry. Okay. Well, sorry. You know. There. The content warning was a doozy enough. I don't think this is very surprising. Everything under the sun. But this was what he wrote. This isn't... Mm -hmm. He's like... It's like journaling, essentially. He's journaling. Okay. But he can also just claim that these are fantasies, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Also at the home, police located 11 bags filled with guns, live and spent ammunition, 13 hunting knives, sections of ropes, and softcore porn magazines. Softcore porn? That's hilarious. Like, you're a pussy. Like Playboy. (laughs) Multiple photos of women before and after death were located as well, although it was hard to identify any of them because the photos were really poor or they just didn't have their faces. 
On top of this, there were photos of Gerard in various types of lingerie, like we said earlier. Lee hand-lined Bonadie's jewelry would later turn up at Gerard's mother's home as well, the neighbor's yeah. sister. But unfortunately, she would again never be located, and <sighs> Gerard would never be convicted of her disappearance. So was he saying, like, he's, like, not doing... Well, we haven't gotten there yet. I'm sure we'll get there, but... He claims he has nothing to do with her disappearance, but why the fuck was her jewelry at, the to- yeah. at his house? When Gerard's stash of souvenirs was seized in 1973, police would recover two of Carmen Halleck's gold-filled teeth and a shamrock pen identified by her family. That's the one that was telling her sister-in-law about the date. Her teeth? But she would never be found either. Oh, yeah. Her, she just gave me her teeth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's not funny, but, like, that's... Yeah. yeah. During the search of both homes in 1973, police located an address book containing the name, address, and phone number of Belinda Hutchinson's husband. She was the one that a husband and two-year-old saw her getting into an unknown car. Mm -hmm. Days later, her husband would identify Gerard's car as the one that took Belinda the day she went missing, but she would never be recovered. At least Farmer's skeletal remains would be found on January 17, 1973, at a construction site near Plantation High School. Near the high school? Mary Briscolina's remains were found on February 15th, about 200 yards away from Elise's. The two girls were found with their legs spread apart, and Mary had been beaten brutally on her head, with one blow proving to be fatal. Oh my god. Several of her fingernails had also been detached from her fingers, showing signs of a brutal struggle. Elise had also been bludgeoned to death. Not a fingernail person. I know, me either. Following a search of Gerard's home in April, Mary's relatives would identify a piece of jewelry that belonged to her. Although Gerard was never charged with these crimes, he would admit to them in a a letter later titled, quote, murder demons, end quote. I don't understand, like, I mean, I understand that it's circumstantial and there's no real evidence, but, like, come on. He's admitting to it. So I have the letter. Some of it. In the letter, written on April 9th, 1991, he stated, quote, What crimes am I supposed to confess? Farmer? Briscolina? What do you think murder demons is? Fiction? You want confessions, but you don't recognize them when I anoint you with them. End quote. Anoint you. When I anoint Because I'm God. First of all, <laughs> I'm God. And second of all, I know a big word. Remember, you didn't get into the priest shit? Yeah. You can't anoint someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The skeletal remains of Colette Goodenough and Barbara Wilcox were discovered in January of 1977. Both victims had been bound together and were still attached together when found. Oh, my God. Evidence that Gerard was the perpetrator of this crime was found in his mother's home as well. But again, never convicted. He wasn't convicted of that one? Mm-mm. This uh, evidence included Barbara's driver's license and Colette's passport, diary, and book of poems. So he, like, stole her, like, personal, Stuff. personal shit. Gerard would later boast about victims, quote, on three continents, end quote, but no bodies were ever found or linked to him overseas. So that was the Africa and the Europe trip. Yeah, I remember I said that earlier. I was like, remember that. Furthermore, teeth and sections of bone later identified as belonging to at least eight victims were also recovered from the property. There was extensively more evidence found at Gerard's home that could all be found online and pointed to him as the perpetrator of at least two more victims. So what was he charged with? I'm getting there. (laughs) Georgia Jessup's purse was found in the possession of Gerard's wife, Teresa. Georgia Jessup. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. Teresa would explain to police that her husband had given her the purse in, quote, about November, end quote, of the previous year, two months after the girls went missing. She thought it was a gift. That's so disgusting. Can you imagine? That's so gross. 
Around April the following year, Teresa explained that Gerard had tried to persuade her to discard the purse, with the explanation that police may try to use the item, quote, to make up some kind of evidence, end quote, against him. <laughs> he works yeah, for the I police department. I have no involvement in this crime, Yeah, but that purse that I gave you as a gift, you might want to get rid of that because they might be able to use that. Yeah. There might be able Who's to use Who's to say it? they can't use my shoes or right. my watch or whatever? Yeah. The purse, specifically? The purse, specifically. Upon learning this, Gerard's brother-in-law gave up the purse to police. <laughs> he was like... Here you go. He told you to get rid of it? Okay, we'll get rid of it into the fucking hands into of the police department. <laughs> the police department. It's no longer in the house. I told you. Yeah, exactly. I got rid of it. By May 1973, police had gathered enough physical and circumstantial evidence to link Gerard Schaefer to nine murders and unsolved disappearances between 1969 and 1973. The same month, a list of 28 murdered or missing girls potentially linked to Gerard was also released. That is a lot. At a press conference held on May 14th, Chief Investigator Lem Brumley Jr. stated to the media, quote, in terms of scope and bizarreness, end quote, the case was the biggest that he had encountered in his career. On May 18th, 1973, Gerard Schaefer was formally charged with first-degree murder for the killings of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup, and was held without bond to await trial. Good. Thank God. Following being formally charged, Gerard was transferred to Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee to undergo 30 days of psychiatric examinations. He would be returned to St. St. Lucie County Jail on June 20th. As a result of the evaluations, Gerard was diagnosed as suffering from paranoia, psychosis, and acute sexual deviation. Yeah. The results also suggested that he saw himself as, quote, an eliminator of women he deemed immoral, end quote, but nonetheless mentally competent to stand trial. So So he knew what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. At circuit court on June 21st, District Attorney Robert Stone argued before Judge Cyrus Pfeiffer Trowbridge that Gerard was sane and competent to stand trial, while Gerard maintained his innocence, stating that the accusations against him were, quote, a mistake, end quote. And saying that he was confident he would be exonerated. What? How does he think? How is all this shit in your house a mistake? Oopsies. Whoopsies. I just left all that shit there by accident. Yeah, exactly. He was just, he was cleaning up the streets and he was like walking around just like collecting trash and discarded items. It just happened to be connected to 30 women. Yeah, exactly. (sighs) On September 17th, 1973, Gerard Schaefer stood trial for murder. At the time of the murders, capital punishment had been declared unconstitutional by the state of Florida so the prosecution went into the trial seeking a life sentence. Gerard would plead not guilty on all charges and was known as staring coldly at the witnesses as they testified against him. Oh, God. I he can't was, imagine sitting across from, like, a perpetrator like oh, that. Oh, yeah. And on top of this, he was also known as smiling at any witness that testified on his behalf. So, like, the prosecution goes up and he's staring at them and then the defense comes up and he's like, Hey, buddy. How's hey, it going? friend. In his opening statement to the jury, Stone Shaler, one of the main prosecutors, stated that the physical and circumstantial evidence against Gerard would prove his guilt without a doubt, and that the state expected the jury to return, quote, a, verdi- a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree as to both counts, end quote. The defense asked to hold their opening statement until the state had rested its case and permission was granted, which I've actually never really heard of that happening. So it was going to be all prosecution, then all defense. Yeah, they're like, we want to know what you have before we go in with our argument, (laughs) or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Multiple people testified during the trial, including Susan Place's parents, Nancy Trotter, and Paula Wells, his first two victims, Mm -hmm. well, that we had he got charged with. Following an entry into evidence of a manuscript written by Gerard in which he had detailed how to, quote, properly execute, 
end quote, women, Stone announced that the state had presented their whole case. Following this, Gerard's defense attorney, Elton Schwartz, would immediately call for Gerard's acquittal, stating that the prosecution's case was fully circumstantial. The court would rule against this. Yeah, good. Like, duh. <laughs> the defense's, defense's strategy was to discredit witnesses' testimony regarding the identification of Gerard. Wait, what? So they were essentially saying, like, oh, the two people that you got, like, your witnesses that you actually got convicted of their crimes, they miss like, identified you. Like, they're just not remembering, right? And they're just wrongly assuming that he's the guy when it's not even him. Even though he's been found guilty of that crime. Yeah, or maybe it was others, like the, like, you know, uh, the mom of Susan, you know, other people like that. And maybe not, I'm not sure exactly who, but that's essentially what he was doing. Eyewitnesses just in general. Yeah. Okay. As far as the whole purse thing goes, with Georgia Justice's purse being Mm -hmm. in Teresa's, uh, what's it called? Possession. Possession, thank you. They even had a witness, the defense did, who stated that he always carried a purse similar to the one identified by Georgia's parents. So that, like, this is, like, well, that's a really common-looking purse. Yeah, it's anybody can have that purse. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, obviously there's more than one purse Oh, made. but it has her ID in it. Sorry. Yeah, like, and her DNA on it. Like, yeah. So this, along with other witness testimony, continued until the defense closed their case. In closing arguments, Elton Schwartz stated to the jury, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, they have got the wrong man, and I hate to think of that, because somebody did this, but I don't believe it was Gerard John Schaefer Jr., end quote. Like, he's out there. We're not doing our due diligence in finding the real perpetrator I for these crimes. Oh, my god! Like, I know that's your job, but, like, you Come up with a better <laughs> answer. Seriously. Get, like, get some, like, actual evidence that he's not guilty, and maybe we'll listen, but... I had a better angle with the whole he's trying to clean up the streets thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just happened to come across this woman, these women's gold teeth. Yeah. So Elton would request that the jury return a verdict of not guilty, obviously. In the prosecution's closing argument, Stone referenced a comment made by a colleague earlier in the trial regarding Gerard being the, quote, prosecutor, judge, and executioner, end quote, in the murders. He added to this, quote, I submit to you one more word, God, because he decided whether he was going to let them live or die. He became God, end quote. Ugh. And I believe that. Keeps. I think that he thinks that he is judge, he jury, has executioner. the power. Yeah. The jury deliberated for five hours before returning with the verdict of two counts of first-degree murder. Upon receiving this verdict, Gerard pro- proclaimed his innocence, stating, quote, that's the roll of the dice. I had a good defense, but I'm innocent, end quote. Obviously, you didn't have a good defense because you just got found fucking guilty of yeah. two counts of murder. That was the crappiest defense I've ever heard. It just wasn't him. It just wasn't him. That's the only... The defense is that the, it, it's just not you. Yeah, That's, it's just not yeah. you and that you're just remembering wrong. Yeah. Sentenc- sentencing began on October 3rd, where the defense argued that Gerard should be involuntarily institutionalized under the 1971 Baker Act rather than life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. I would be down for that. Yeah, as long as he's never getting out exactly. and he's getting treatment. The following day, Gerard Schaefer was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences to be served in Florida State Prison. <laughs> the judge was like, no. No. <laughs> Fucking no. No, he's got, he's had too many chances. Because he has been found sane. Yes. Gerard once again claimed his innocence before requesting that he be sent to a psychiatric hospital. Now he's trying to play the I'm crazy card. Yeah. Because it's out of convenience now. Of course. Susan's, Susan Place's mother expressed her satisfaction at the sentencing by stating to reporters, quote, at first, I thought I'd like to see him dead, but I think people suffer more with confinement. Death is the easy way out, just as long as he's never on the streets again, end mm-hmm. quote. 
Originally, Gerard would have had the possibility of parole after between 14 and 19 years served, but his date was revised in May 1979 to indicate the likelihood of parole in 2016. Okay. (laughs) Gerard would appeal his conviction, stating that he had never been indicted by a grand jury and requested a new trial. The appeal was rejected in 1974. Gerard would maintain his innocence in prison, filing 19 appeals total, all of which were denied. (laughs) He's just going to keep trying. He also developed a reputation in prison as an aloof, sketchy guy who may have been an informant. So everybody thought he was an informant? Yes. He got into writing and also tried to sue a writer who described Gerard as, quote, worse than Ted Bundy, end quote. <laughs> He's like, fuck you, I'm no worse than Ted Bundy. I'm, I'm better, yeah. I'm doing the Lord's work. Yeah, honestly. Ugh. That's what he thinks of me, not honestly. Yeah. In response to this letter threatening to sue, the writer responded that there was no reason for him to be intimidated by, quote, a middle-aged, pale, and doughy wimp who preyed on <laughs> victims that were physically and psychologically weaker than him, end quote. The last that, one's not funny, but the... No, doughy. Doughy is hilarious. Got me. But it's, like, really funny, though, because, like, this guy's like, Gerard, you're worse than Ted Bundy. Gerard's like, no, yeah, I'm gonna see you. He's like, I'm not intimidated by you, you doughy wimp. <laughs> <laughs> doughy pussy. You're <laughs> the middle age too, which is funny. This <laughs> is non-threatening. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like he's like, yeah, you can't, like you can't do anything. Like, well, I mean, it's true. He preys upon young girls. Like he said, physically and psychologically weaker than yeah. him. Like that's so true. Or people, yeah, or people that are, you know, used to sex work, or people that you know do this as a career, yeah, and or a job, and just. Ugh. Yeah, he's yeah. specifically targeting people. Of course, and we see that a lot too. People yeah. that target like certain communities because they think it'll be easier yeah. to like get away with. But what's funny is that for him, it's in the subconscious. He mm-hmm. doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as this like big alpha male yeah, figure, yeah, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah. when he's just a doughy wimp. On December third, nineteen ninety five, Gerard John Schaefer was stabbed to death <gasps> on the floor of his cell. What? He had over forty stab wounds on his face, head neck and body and his throat was also slashed his right eye destroyed and several ribs fractured too good for him his body was discovered by a fellow inmate who informed co's 32 year old fellow inmate vincent faustina rivers had killed gerard over an argument over who was going to get the last cup of hot water from the dispenser what this argument reportedly happened days before the murder and Rivers was ultimately convicted of Gerard's murder in 1999 and received an additional 53 years and 10 months added to his sentence. He was already serving life plus 20 years for double homicide. I was going to ask if he was a lifer, and that's why. He actually never confessed to Gerard's murder, and the true motive behind the de- behind his death remains unknown. Yeah, so but he was it could have been another... Well, I mean, he's already been there for life. Maybe he took the, the rap for the guilt or blame or sorry for someone that was maybe getting out soon or something yeah i don't know know. well i mean gerard wasn't probably the easiest person to get along with i'm assuming and i was gonna add in as well it was widely believed that he was killed for being a prison informant as there was numerous acts committed against him in the year prior to his death like he had been assaulted before i could see that they're like okay you used to be a former cop there's got to be some good in you yeah. somewhere and they play that angle exactly well uh, included in these multiple attempts to hurt him in the past he actually got like fecal matter thrown at him and he his cell got set on fire like multiple times <laughs> 
They just, like, light his fucking bed on fire and his, sh- yeah. and his fucking clothes and shit. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, it might have also been the fact that he was a cop. Yeah, I think that, that people really like played to fuck into with him. it. Yeah. They just assumed. Upon hearing of Gerard's death, Georgia Jessup's mother stated, quote, I've always believed he was going to get this. I just wish it had been sooner rather than later, end quote. The judge who presided over his murder trial stated, quote, he's finally gotten the death sentence he ultimately deserved but couldn't be given, end quote. Damn. I know. It's a babies. Police were in the process of getting more evidence together to convict Gerard of further murders while he, when he was killed. Sheriff Robert Crowder would later re- recollect the case in 2009, quote, I think the case just made law enforcement more aware of the existence of serial murderers. It made us aware of things to key in on when we have a crime like this, where there is the potential for it being one perpetrator and multiple victims, end quote. In reference to the victims, a fellow panelist at the meeting that Sheriff Crowder spoke at stated, quote, The victims are not the only victims. The victims are also the families. The victims are also the law enforcement who work these cases. None of those people who worked this were ever the same, end quote. Hmm. So I mentioned earlier a couple of victims that were likely related to Gerard, but there's a couple more that I'd like to mention as well. On January 18th, 1970, 19-year-old Merritt Ellen Malaric and 18-year-old Karen Lynn Farrell were last seen alive leaving a theater in Morgantown, West Virginia. Their bodies were discovered on April 16th, and although an inmate with an extensive history of writing false confessions claimed to have committed the murders, the validity of the confession was disputed. And the evidence pointed directly at Gerard, but he was actually formally cleared as a suspect. Not sure why. Hmm. He was cleared in 1982. On February 29th, 1971, 13-year-old Deborah Sue Lowe was last seen walking to her middle school. Her textbooks would later be found in a trash can just one block from her home, Hmm. but her body was never found. However, her family strongly believes that Gerard was responsible for her disappearance because he had actually worked with her dad at one point and was, like, frequently in the home. (gasps) Yeah. That's creepy. On March 19th, 20-year-old Bonnie R. Taylor was last seen. It is known that she was stopped for a speeding violation by Gerard shortly before her disappearance, and there is not any more information on this case, as far as I know. That's in 71, I think. On August 11th, 1971, Leonard Joseph Master, 46, was last seen alive at a bar in Riviera Beach. His body was discovered on Hutchinson Island on January 3rd, 1973, close to where Gerard had bound and threatened Nancy Trotter and Paula Wells. Leonard's body was found without hands, and no direct evidence exists to pin Gerard for the murder. However, Gerard was known to have referenced his murder at one point following his conviction. Okay, so that's the only reason why they suspect him? I was going to say it's totally out of the M.O. It totally is, and I don't know if he referenced it because he took something from it, maybe, and used it in one of his future murders. I don't know. But that's all they had to say about that one. Interesting. 22-year-old Elizabeth Renee Wilt was traveling to Florida from Fayetteville, Arkansas, when she was last heard from. She had sent her stepfather a letter dated August 30th, postmarked in Miami Beach, where she indicated that she was quickly going to return home. Her body would never be found either. At the end of 1972, 15-year-old Suzanne Gale Poole would go missing two days before Christmas. Partial skeletal remains were found on June 16th, 1974, bound to a mangrove tree in a swampland. The remains would not be identified of being that of Suzanne's until May of 2022 via (gasps) genetic genealogy. Whoa. The circumstances surrounding her disappearance led investigators to believe that she may have been a victim of Gerard's as he was temporarily released from court one day prior to her disappearance. So if anybody listening has any information on any of those cases, obviously you can call your local police department. 
I don't have a direct line, but definitely reach out if you have any information. If you're interested in watching a documentary of Gerard's full life and everything, I mean, that was pretty detailed here, but if you want to watch a documentary, he was featured in episodes of Married with Secrets, Killer Cops, and Investigations Discoveries Most Evil. And his diagnoses, again, just to remind everybody, include paranoia, psychosis, and acute sexual deviation, as well as suspected antisocial personality disorder, mm. which I'm mm-hmm. sure you were thinking that earlier. Yeah. Yeah, when we talked about personality disorders, some narcissism in there, too. Yeah. But that is the wild... That is a wild <laughs> ...requested case, case of Gerard yeah. John Schaefer. And the thank East... you so much for requesting that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say. Thank you for requesting that, because that is a doozy. Huge doozy. A huge A huge doozy. A huge doozy. Doozy doozy. Yeah. That's a lot. How's that for the case before the con? Gosh, that's a good one right before the con. Gosh, a lot of content there. A lot of content content and i know that when the episode was suggested by our listener she said that is also suspected that he had gender dysphoria i personally didn't get that in my personal opinion mm-hmm. because what we kind of talked about with it kind of seemed like it might have been like a cover-up for like the army or things like that yeah i don't know if that's necessarily true and he wasn't ever diagnosed with that but i yeah. did just want to pepper that in there as well i think that the you know with us discussing the and again we're not here to diagnose but yeah. i think with the hatred towards like maybe his sister or wanting to be seen as more or recognized as maybe more sensitive and to I think that maybe in watching his father participate with his sister maybe he's like I wish I could be that sensitive and vulnerable Mm -hmm. with my dad but I can't like I'm expected to be this like man and maybe that's where a lot of that alpha stuff comes from but that he's trying to still maintain some type of connection to his his sensitive, like, to, to be vulnerable and be sensitive. And maybe that's where the, the underwear thing came from. Yeah, no, absolutely. He definitely had uh, a lot going on up there. And I don't know. I mean, it's just like a, it's a really sad kind of story, like, all the way around. Like, mm-hmm. of course, for the victims. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't want to say he had, like, a bad, bad childhood, because we've seen worse cases, but with the constant verbal abuse in the household, yeah. the alcoholism, who's to say there wasn't any sort of under uh, pre- predisposed underlying mental disorder that that no. trauma caused to present. Like, yeah, exactly. He clearly had a lot of mental issues. Trauma is trauma. Abuse is abuse. Yeah, And exactly. I do definitely think, especially after talking about that Dunning-Kruger and talking about how he clearly was inept in many cases and is, like, pursuing being a police officer, pursuing college, or being an educator he self-sabotaged because he wasn't capable of the follow-through. Mm-hmm. And I find that very interesting that he didn't realize how inept he was when it came to things like that. It mm-hmm. was everybody else's fault. And then, again, that low frustration you talked about. Yeah, I've never really heard that term like, described, but it makes sense. Like, as it soon does. as I heard it, I was like, oh, I know exactly what that means. You know? <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's found things that work for him to create that dissonance or that distance from being uncomfortable mm-hmm. And that's something that was probably very much nurture. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you again for the requested case. I actually am doing another requested case for my next case in two weeks. And when you hear this, the next day we'll be having that new mental breakdown coming out. And that's also a requested mental breakdown. Oh, that's So I'm doing a lot of listener requests before the con. (laughs) So. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And we hope you like these long episodes. That one was a doozy and a half. So. We will see you guys soon. Yes. Okay. We'll see you tomorrow. Ah, love All you. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye.